Welcome to Management 101, your home for learning about management and leadership in business. Now, here is your host, Max Winokur. Hello, and welcome back to Management 101. I am your host, Max Winokur, and I am joined today by a former colleague and current friend, Bill Zhang. Bill, thank you for joining us. Where are you calling in from today? It's an honor, Max, calling from Sacramento before the heat wave co comes through. Oh, indeed. Yes, I was in Sacramento last summer and my shoe melted on the railroad track in Old Town. It was that hot. <laughs> yeah. So I, I know Sacramento heat. Bill and I worked together for almost a year at Incredible Health. And Bill ran a large team within the overall operations function there. I know Bill to be a very analytical manager, as well as a very thoughtful manager and leader, and very strategically minded. I think I always learn something from Bill when, when we're talking about how to approach professional problems. It's always a pleasure. I thought we'd have a interesting conversation today about the intersection between analytics and leadership, because I think Bill is strong on both those fronts and has a unique perspective there. Before we get into it, Bill, in your own words, tell us a little bit about your background and what you do today. Thank you for your kind words. Hopefully I'll live up to that one day. But in my word, own words, as I you have heard me saying before, I was trained an engineer and turned into a healthcare operations leader, did a little bit of data consulting on population health stuff, and went into, back into grad school because I feel like I was just an imposter. I was talking about all these <laughs> clinical terms where I have no idea what they mean. After getting my master's, I wanted to learn about how to keep people healthy while making money and then... One name come to into my mind as Kaiser being the kind of the flagship of the integrated health in the industry. That's where I ended up going through their leadership pipeline program to learn different aspects of their business and manage a relatively large team there through COVID, not by choice. A lot of interesting learning there. And then afterwards, I feel like I was equipped with knowledge and understood the healthcare industry a little bit more. That's where you and I met at Incredible Health. Yeah, that's where I stole you away from, if I remember correctly. Accurately, and very glad. Great step to the right direction for me in my career and personal growth. After learning from you, I pivoted to Galileo, which is a still patient care business, but more virtual-driven and more focused on how to make care affordable for all kinds of patients, ranging from Medicaid patients all the way to patients who are having a commercial and employer-sponsored insurance. And what is your role today at Galileo? I work under the digital care operations and then lead that function. What does that mean is to make sure we have right providers, it means doctors and nurse practitioners, at the right time to care for the right patient for the right reason. One of the things that I have always found really inspiring about your approach to your professional career is you are someone who really loves learning and you have been in a number of different environments. But one of the things that I think is a cool thread between them is when you think about a typical corporation or senior leader, I think people tend to think of a more corporate background, right? People who come from like an MBA type education 
and have come up through consulting or banking. You come from a background that you have actually been managing populations of teams that come from entirely different backgrounds than that. At Kaiser, you were working with a very large population of doctors and uh, at Incredible Health, of course, you were managing a large team of nurses. And so you come from a background of people who just have incredibly different experiences than you that you're managing. And the challenges around that are, I think, really interesting and very applicable in a lot of jobs where people are managing groups of individuals who have done a bunch of different things or come from a bunch of different backgrounds. I'm curious, before we get into some of the details of leadership and analytics, just what is what is something that you learned through managing these types of teams that have very different backgrounds that you always would bring with you in the to future managerial roles? Yeah, great question. And sometimes I get myself into a situation I don't understand very well. And then once I'm there, I'm like, oh, wow, they're quite different from me. So it takes some learning curves to get used to. But I think from my perspective, there's two main things on that is one, always stay humble and curious, meaning that for managing a team that have done quite different things than you and have very different education background than you, you cannot assume they think like you and you can't assume what they're doing or how they're feeling, right? So it's a lot about curiosity on understanding what are they truly working on? What do they feel like is the biggest barrier? And what do they feel like the most proud of? And things like that to understand how they think about things and problems and how to solve it versus how I think about it and then how to create synergy between those two. Yeah, Second, I think once you are curious and humble enough to learn about it, make sure you trust and empower your team to do what they're hired to do, right? I'm never going to tell a nurse practitioner how they're doing clinical care wrong. I can tell them how the workflow might be more efficient. And that merge with their clinical knowledge could make, take us to a better place. But it's really about trusting their judgment and their insights as the front line of a person doing the work they're doing and combine what my kind of problem solving framework using analytics, as we'll talk about further, using understanding of the process and structure and understanding of the team dynamics and customer dynamics, and then put that in place and hopefully create a co-create a solution for us to solve problems we encounter. Something that I experienced in a number of my roles, including Incredible Health, which you had the experience of as well, was managing a team of nurses. Now, I'm not a nurse by training, nor have I worked with nurses historically. They took a very different approach to problem solving than I did. And in some ways it worked significantly better. I think the one thing that I found really interesting was just when we brought a bunch of people together, some of whom came from a nursing background, some of whom came from other backgrounds, I found that we came up with some really good ideas that probably no individual would have thought of on their own. And that experience for me really spoke to the importance of diversity particularly diversity of background when trying to solve problems in a business setting, because you just get a lot of different ways of thinking. The other thing that I found really interesting there was 
the things that I took for granted in a managerial role, some of them were completely new to the team I came in to manage. So one example was a nurse coming from a hospital background is completely unfamiliar with one-on-ones. That's not something that they've had in their career. And I come from a setting where one-on-ones are table stakes, right? In a typical corporate entity, one-on-ones between managers and direct reports are completely normal and to be expected. And so when I was first scheduling these one-on-ones, the team had no idea what to talk about. They didn't even know what they were. I thought it was a really good learning experience for me just to remember to not make assumptions. And I have taken that with me many times since to not take anything for granted when joining a role and definitely assume nothing. I have one more question before we get into the leadership, which is a little bit of a different topic, but will Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown be teammates oh next season? I I have so much thoughts on this topic. I have avoided watching the last four games because I feel like my health should not. I will say it was painful. It was painful. Particularly the seventh. Yep. So I honestly think if the contracting situation is going to be what it is, they probably will be broken up because at at the playoff scenario, basically at the crunch time where you need your star player the most, I don't think Jalen Brown has been performing like one. And if he's expected to be paid like one, it'll be one of those contracts that will seem to be very overpriced in a few years. So the Celtics won't pay that. Yeah, I think they will try to get him to agree to something less than what he's eligible for. But with his pride and like other like potential buyers on the market, he could easily go find somewhere else that will pay him the maximum number of years of a contracts, right? So it's going to be very challenging to manage that. But as we all know, organizational inertia is very strong. So it takes someone truly making a decision to not do that and then take the blame if it didn't go well. So it's an interesting leadership lesson for us to observe to see if there is someone who is going to intentionally be standing out and to say, hey, I'm the one going to make this decision and I'll take responsibility for it, no matter the outcome, and then see how where it lands. But in my opinion, it's just really challenging. I think they probably will be better off to have someone slightly more complementary skill set and kind of style to play with game, along with Tatum. And then hopefully to have a new look of the team because they've been using like the same formula for the same team for quite a few years. They just always come up short with a very similar fashion. That's just really unfortunate. I appreciate your perhaps purposeful segue into leadership. So we've got a couple of topics here. The first is just talking through what makes a good leader. Bill has worked for a number of leaders, some good, some bad, same here. And I think Bill brings a very reflective perspective to this topic. And then we'll get into the cross between leadership and analytics. And I think in particular, what makes analytics so important as a leader and in a company? Let's start with the leadership side. Just generally speaking, what would you define as a good leader in the context of today's workplace? Obviously, a good leader will look very differently in different companies depending on the culture of the company. 
But I think a common thread you can probably observe are three key components or traits that defines a good leader. One, the leader themselves is competent at their own job, not only being a leader, but also being able to do certain things that their job requires them to do, right? That will earn them respect and have the have themselves being able to coach and teach and mentor other leaders on at least some kind of a subject matter expertise. Let's take this to the extreme because I'm curious your thoughts on it. You say one of the things that a leader needs is context and knowledge of the, well, the job they're supposed to be doing. Yep. Let's say that a company brings in a leader from the outside who is unfamiliar with the industry. Is it possible for them to be successful? Yeah, absolutely. They can easily be successful because I think their knowledge about certain things is not necessarily context-specific in a way that if a leader come in into a operations role and they're really strong in analytics, they can teach the team on that aspect while learning the other industry-specific or company-specific context. What I'm hearing from you is the important thing is not specifically to be good at every aspect of the job, but to be a good leader, one needs to be aware of what they're skilled at and willing to learn where they are not skilled. Yep, perfectly summarized thing that way. And I think it's really about like, how do you exemplify your strength and then use that to leverage and lift up the team while you continue to learn to improve the things that you are not so like key uh, so expert on and then become better at those so they will not become a drawback for you as a leader let's say that i've had this experience many times and i'm sure you have as well where there were areas of the function that you really had to ramp up in that you knew nothing about let's say that you're a leader in a new organization and you're leading a function that doesn't look quite like previous functions that you've worked in and you have a big knowledge gap and a learning curve what's the right way to get up to speed and protect your team from your lack of knowledge there i like to use frameworks in situations because they're the compass to navigate in different scenarios so when you go into a situation like that you need to get up to speed on where the team is and where the performance is right i like to separate those two because people management and performance management are closely related, but maybe slightly different in terms of your tactics you're going to apply. Understanding the team, their maturity, the cohesiveness, and the culture is very important. And that does not need to be specific to any context, right? You need to understand who do you have on your team, just like the basketball team. You need to know the personnel. And then the other part is learning about the context, right? As you mentioned, if you know nothing about it, you need to pick the key people to talk to. And in my mind, the key people would be the person who's reporting to you, who is like in a leadership role, several people who are doing the direct work that how does it's being done. And the people who are the most vocal about issues and complaining about problems that help you to understand what is the leader's perspective of the team? What is overall people's perspective on average? And what are the potential big areas you need to tackle as problems. And then you ask everyone, 
what is the most proud thing they have accomplished recently in work? And what is the biggest problem they see in work? And how do they make the work, if they can, magically better? And then that those several questions get you pretty quickly to the highs, the lows, the good, bad, the ugly of the work. And then you can learn and do research on the side about content-specific knowledge, like how does medical licensing work? Those kind of things, you can read several articles in a few hours and you can get yourself up to speak with the same lingo. And then you can have a more educated conversation with the folks. I also think that oftentimes what I'll see leaders come in and basically try to fake it till they make it, pretend that they know everything so they don't come across in their fearful of being seen as stupid or lacking knowledge and therefore people won't buy into them and therefore they won't do a good job. But what I've found, and I've really tried to embrace this myself, though obviously I have my own tendencies as a human being as well and probably don't do it perfectly. I've found that great leaders come in and communicate readily that they don't know everything and say, hey, I'm going to ask some probably pretty dumb questions to you all who are very expert in this area, but I'm going to do that because I really want to understand and learn. And I think that along with what you said, which is you didn't say anything about coming in and doing anything, right? Day one, you're not coming in and making decisions. All of this is I am here to learn and understand and gain perspective before I take any action. And those two things together, the desire to learn as well as the communication that you're learning, I think are really important for new leaders, but also for leaders who have been in their functions for a long time. There's just no business that's static. There's constantly changing situations, both in the competitive marketplace, as well as just user preferences, you name it, right? In technological development. And so you as a leader, you can't possibly know all those things. So always staying humble and assuming you don't know everything is a winning approach no matter what. And if for even for the things you do know, it's always helpful to ask other people to see what's their perception of the things you do know. You might be surprised to see a lot of gaps of perceptions on how things are going. And then that's a great conversation to have as well. That's true. Yeah, I guess. How do you know you're the foremost expert in this topic? Maybe there's a ton to learn. This is a complex world with lots of information and lots of different approaches to the same problem. And certainly you have only had some narrow perspective on how to solve it. And that's actually one of the things that I've loved about all the different types of work I've gotten to do is I just get to experience a lot of different ways to think about problems, right? You go into the healthcare industry and they think about something one way, you go into the legal world and they think about something a totally different way. And now I get to learn from both and create my own hybrid. But I also know that there's 500 other industries that I've never worked in that I can probably gain some insight from too. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk for a moment about the softer side. Although I guess we have learning is very much a soft skill. What about emotional intelligence? What is emotional intelligence to you? And what can you think of a leader that you've had where you thought this person has tremendous emotional intelligence and it's making them a good leader? That was another big part of what make a good leader is to have that emotional intelligence. And then for me, that breaks down to you. You are self-aware and can self-modulate and you are aware of your audience and the environment and your team and able to influence the team, right? 
these are all like component of of the emotional intelligence and it all starts with being genuine and being vulnerable i think you know reason that why this is important is that you want to build trust right you're not going to be able to build trust with a facade and try to pretend who you're not because people see that through pretty quickly no matter how good you are at doing it but with your very genuine and show vulnerability you will you'll have the team to humanize you as a leader therefore they will trust you and you can actually get to the real work versus trying to have this game of pretending and then having a lot of surface conversations you never get to do the real work in my opinion so that's why i think it's important for a leader and quite a few like leaders in the past have come across they're not afraid to show emotions in in a productive manner so an example is my previous boss at kaiser during covid after a year and a half she broke in down t- in tears because it was a lot of stress it was a lot of pressure on her and managing a lot of situations and having to seeing our patients pass away right that's emotionally taxing she's not trying to pretend it doesn't impact her it actually does impact her it actually impacts everyone but it's not being openly communicated and then people just bottle up their feelings it's not a very healthy way to deal with that at the same time when i say express your feelings productively if you're like very frustrated about something let's say the performance of a team is not achieving the goal after multiple attempts it's still stagnant you are very frustrated because certain key players are not pulling their weight it need to be clearly and respectfully called out in a very direct communicated manner but it cannot be like smashing the table yelling at people those are emotions but they're not productively <laughs> expressed so yeah. i think there's a line about how do you have enough in- emotional intelligence to express your emotions show vulnerability be genuine but make it productive and make it about the work not about the people on the emotional front two comments one i think there are certain emotions that i would describe as active emotions and anger is one of those and then there are other emotions that are more passive emotions i think sadness is one of those i think generally as a leader the more active emotions particularly the negative ones don't have much of a place in the workplace they can be very off-putting and also they can really erode trust people myself included can have very strong reactions to active emotions in a workplace setting or in a personal setting whereas passive emotions like sadness are i think considered to be authentic ones that can build trust and build connection between people. So as a leader, I think it's probably important to think about how you express emotions and which emotions you express, the passive ones being a little bit more authenticity creating and connection creating and the active ones likely being less so. There are obviously some exceptions, I think. I could think of sports being one of them where Obviously, active emotions play a much larger role, but in a typical workplace setting, that's not so much the case. The other thought I was going to offer, or I'm going to offer because I'm about to say it, is I was reading an article about Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of Theranos, who 
recently went to prison for everything that went on there. And the article talked about the concept. I think it was an article written by someone who interviewed to be a senior executive there long after a lot of the scandal had already occurred. And he talks about this concept that authenticity is a horseshoe. Someone who's completely authentic and genuine is on one end of the horseshoe. And then someone who's completely fake is actually not that far off from that on the other end of the horseshoe. And the bigger gap is when you only have some of both of those things. But being completely authentic and being completely fake are actually remarkably close to each other in perception. To be clear, I'm not advocating for being fake. I do think that when you join a role as a leader, if you are being fake, it may come across to you like people are really connecting with you and really buying into your leadership. And that might be true in the short term. I think though, in the long term, it becomes very obvious to people when the depth is actually lacking. People will feel that over time and they might've been excited about you when you join, but if you're not capable of being a totally authentic leader and, and showing who you are and showing that you care, that facade, like you said, will erode and it is very hard to get back. So I think even if being a somewhat artificial leader can achieve early results, it is very much a facade of results and will not stay over time. Yep, absolutely agree with that. Next question. What strategies can leaders employ to build trust and strong relationships with their team? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways I've seen it being done. One funny one that myself have done uh, is when I just joined Kaiser to manage union staff who are on average 25 years older than me. I was wearing suit and tie every day, just trying to be professional. They regarded me as a robot from a corporate world. <laughs> so one day they saw me having funny socks and eating chips. They were like, oh, Bill is a human. He has funny side too. We can trust that. And it, that's a very interesting learning for me. That was not the intentional. I was like, how do I communicate to them that I'm authentic? Just because I'm wearing suits doesn't mean I'm a fake person. But that's a perception from the union staff, right? They have certain stereotype in their mind. But then we make the chips as part of our like weekly meeting theme. So we have we taste a different chip every single meeting. And we rate them. So we cut like a uh, chips ranking. It was very interesting. And it was a great team, like after a few months working together. And I, I think the learning there, like overall strategy is trying to find things you can connect with your team on and making sure that you're creating a safe space and a ritual to continue to connect with your team. That could be in the form of one-on-ones. It could be a form of, monthly team meetings to talk about different things. It could be very small things that starting a meeting to say, hey, what's on your mind, right? Let's talk about that. Or having certain check-ins that's just very sporadic and random, but show you care about them. These small gestures will go a long way. And it's really about you doing these type of things, less about exact words you say, because words are cheap, right? You can say anything. But what they really care about is to see you are doing things that you're saying, and then they can build that trust. Additionally, there's two very key moments. I think there's a book, Power of Moments. It's very interesting I read about. It's really about 
the peak and then the valley. So celebrate, really make sure you make a point of celebrate when you, your team is achieving success. They feel that positive connection to you, but also make sure pick, you pick your team up when they're like having a failure, right? How do you motivate them? How do you make sure they stay on course? They still feel like they have energy to move forward after some failures and learn from it. I think those are two very key moments as a leader. You need to make sure your presence is felt in the team. On the contrary of all the other things I said about letting and empowering the team to do the things, these two moments, you need to be front and center and then making sure you're truly leading the team. And then that would really go a long way to build the trust because I think trust is deposit. I think one of my mentors told me, you are depositing small deposit on a daily basis and you're depositing big deposit on those peak and valley moments. And then when you're making changes in any organization, you're taking a deposit out. So you need to maintain a really good balance in the rainy day fund so that you have the trust with a team to make changes. And if you're not having that deposit stowed away and you make changes, it will be a very much hard to navigate all those implications. I like the bank account analogy. I was thinking about how trust connects to the ability to make changes and what it takes to make changes effectively. It probably seems very obvious when you've built trust, people believe a lot more what you say, right? If you have to make changes that might generically be perceived as bad ones, when you have that trust, people will give you the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, I think I know what Max is doing. I think I know what Bill's doing. Or I think Max or Bill knows what they are doing. Rather than, this is a bad idea for X, Y, and Z reason. The lower down you go in the organization, the less belief those individuals have in the senior leaders to make good decisions on average, right? If you think about any nurse staff, for example, if you think about any support staff, if you think about entry-level operations people, you name it. Overall, my experience has been that that group's perception of the highest ranked leaders in the organization is bad or certainly not as good as the people who report closer to those individuals. I think it's because those leaders haven't spent time developing trust. And so any changes that they make, the default reaction is this wasn't very considerate of X, Y, and Z things that are true about my job and are true about what's actually happening on the ground. And I know for a fact that this person hasn't seen that happening and therefore these decisions that they're making are bad ones or uninformed ones. Part of, I think, making changes in an organization, and I know I'm veering a little here, but I think it's related, is when you make changes in an organization, part of the due diligence you have to do is going to the entry-level folks, the people who are actually doing the work and understanding what they do making sure that what they do is incorporated into the changes you're making and also making sure that they understand it. My experience has been throughout my career in any large company that a lot of time is spent on figuring out the changes and very little time is spent on communicating them effectively. They're just sent out there and said, this is it. Now onward we go. And the negative reaction of folks within the organization to that 
can really metastasize over time and erode trust and degrade morale. And when taken to an extreme, a company that has changes that happen on a repeated basis, so basically any company in a relatively a dynamic environment, basically yeah. any startup, is over time going to erode trust with its with the main body of the people doing the work because the leaders are not spending time figuring out how to communicate. They're saying, I sent this email, I had this one meeting, I think we're fine. And they don't choose to invest in having individual interactions and really explaining why these things are happening. Yeah, my mentor from the hospital world, when I was shadowing him, he made a point like every day he's gonna walk the floor. Like he's a CFO of the hospital. Like he, him walking the floor doesn't really achieve anything to his work. Sure. But he does want it to ask the people, what are the issues they're seeing on a daily basis and understand what are they facing of the challenges and also see the aftermath of his own decisions along with other leaders and how has it been impacting the other like staff's life, right? And then asking those questions is collecting data points. And, but the side benefit of people seeing him physically and vis visually on the floor and being there, they feel like they, they can trust him because to your point, he's actually being there for them, right? He's not just sitting in the like top floor office, making random decisions about numbers. He's there like among the people to asking questions, talking to them and on a regular basis. It's not, oh, he's too putting on a show for a day. He's doing it every week and you can see him. And then that really feel like the way to galvanize the people to accept certain changes that may not be fully beneficial for one group of people, but it may be for the greater good of the entire organization, but you just have to physically be there and then you have to be prepared to speak honestly about why you're making a decision to do something and then explain how that will impact the organization overall and then hear the feedback and hear what people say. It may not be easy to hear that feedback. It may be fear-inducing to put yourself out there in front of your workforce, but that is the only way you're going to create buy-in and keep people around and ensure that people and the organization are delivering consistently above and beyond the basic expectations. Ruling your organization without communication, particularly direct communication from you as a leader, is literally leaving money on the table. If you want to just think about it from a business perspective, let alone from a work environment perspective, don't we all want to be part of an environment where we are a community, where we feel seen by the leaders in our organization, by the others in our organization, where we feel comfortable? Of course, who wouldn't want that? When we don't, as leaders, communicate and put ourselves out there, put ourselves in the shoes of the individuals doing the work, we're just missing out on the opportunities to build that type of culture. Absolutely. I've got one more question related to leadership, which is, and of course, please don't name names, but can you think of a bad leader you've had? Maybe even the worst leader you've had. Tell me some things that leader did that made them such a bad leader. Unfortunately, I have experienced like anyone else in the workforce, bad leaders in my sure. career. But 
the things that I think is the opposite of what a good leader will exemplify, right? The lack of self-modulation when expressing feelings or when they're on the other side of the horseshoe, the lack of genuine communication and the trust. That's, I think, the biggest problem with bad leaders is that they lose the trust of the team. And then they that's something easily lost and very hardly earned back. What they do exactly is they could be multiple things that could have this kind of effect when you are communicating one thing to one group and something very different to the other group, and you will clearly be seeing deceptive, right? You're not being genuine. When you are expressing those very active feelings repeatedly in multiple occasions against multiple group of people, you're seeing being overly aggressive at different times. And then the third category will be, or the type of things they do is total removal from the rest of the workforce because you're a quote-unquote leader, you're better than everyone else, you are not part of them, you are above them, and you don't have the kind of connection to the people you're leading. These three type of behaviors that I've seen in the past have quickly lose trust, no matter it's the trust of your direct report or the trust of the extended team that you're leading. That's how I see about as a really bad leader. It has manifested in meetings, you know, in town halls, in roundings, in like email and phone call communications. Those kind of behavior really damages someone's leadership status. It's possible that the easiest way to erode trust with someone in your organization is to talk shit about someone else to them. Oh, yeah. And it might feel at the moment like you're building trust with someone. It might feel like, oh, I'm confiding in you about this other person and all the things that they're doing wrong. But in reality, what you're doing is you are telegraphing to them that I will talk shit about people behind their back. And now I, as the recipient of the shit talking, am going to be on edge because I don't believe that I am safe with you. So if yep. you want to road trust really quickly... Talk shit about someone else to that person. Yep. Absolutely. The other thing to go back to another thing you mentioned is removal from the organization. One of my roles early in my career was in a sort of bridge role between corporate staff and warehouse staff. We were running a product that was operated out of a warehouse, but was built centrally and the thing that I found the most frustrating about this organization was the leaders of the organization in the central function refused to go to warehouses. I spent a year in that role and I visited a warehouse with another leader with me one time. I was in one of the warehouses every two or three weeks. And to be clear, this is not me tooting my own horn. I think this is just table stakes. If you want to lead an organization, you have to understand the different pieces of it. The other easy way to erode trust or to never build it is to never go and understand the business that you're running. And I can tell you that folks in the warehouse had tremendous skepticism of the corporate leadership. And for very good reason, there were some basic things about the operation of that product that those corporate leaders who were making decisions around resourcing and 
investment simply didn't know because they'd never seen it happen. Yeah, I think all this, even though like I'm not working in the manufacturing environment anymore, but it all comes from my industrial engineering training back in undergrad when I learned about Six Sigma Lean manufacturing from Toyota, which you just go to Gamba, like you go look at what people are working on, but in the process connecting with the people who's doing the work. And I think that's universally applied, like remote working, remote work environment right now in the hospital, in a warehouse, that's just universally true to how to actually be effective as a leader. You have to connect with the people and understand the work. Absolutely. Now you don't have to be able to do the work. I, as a baseball coach, don't need to be able to play first base. Obviously I would be a terrible first baseman. I might be a terrible baseball coach for all I know, but you need to understand how the first baseman does their job. That uh, Lean Six Sigma note is a nice segue into the analytics piece of the discussion. Yeah. So thank you again. Your segues have been spot on. Let's talk through being a data-driven leader and decision maker. I think that there's a version of this that you've probably seen, which is those leaders that refuse to look at data and operate purely based on hunch. And then there's a version of it that's leaders who are overly dependent on data and don't take any qualitative information into account and make no better decision. How do you as a leader create a culture where you're towing that line of at our core, we are analytically driven. We're going to use numbers, which I think you and I could both agree are tremendously important to the successful organization, but we're not going to be overly reliant on them. I can tell you myself has my engineering background to like tilting me heavily to the data-driven side, literally working as a data analytics consultant before, trusting the data tells the truth and the fact. But as I progress in my career and working with the larger stakeholders, groups, understanding that data may be telling the truth absolutely in one area, but it's the limited truth, right? So trusting the data is telling the whole truth would be a mistake. What you want to complement the data is two pieces. One, context about how the data is collected, processed, and presented to so you can truly understand the essence of data, not just the surface value of a number, right? The second piece is what is the data is not telling? Because anytime you're collecting data, it's only a snapshot of the entire world at that moment, right? There's a lot of things around it that's not being captured in data. You need to find that out as a leader to truly understand the problem and propose a solution that's realistic, not just a partial solution or a biased solution based on purely on data. So I think that is my perspective at the right now, at the moment, as I continue to grow and learn that it's really about taking the data, but not at a face value, understand the context and how it's being presented and processed and what is not showing in the data to form a coherent storyline with people and other factors in there. That would have you a much better understanding of the situation and make a very informed decision. One of the challenges that I've had is I'm very numbers driven. I really looking at dashboards. And when I work in a company, I have a good understanding of all the different metrics that make up success, right? One of the challenges I've had has been numbers change week to week, right? We could have done all the same things this week as last week, but whatever metric is different 
And of course, none of that can be explained by changes in what we've done. So something else is going on. I have never been able to quite find the right line. And I'm curious to see if you have between it was just exogenous factors, seasonality. That's probably a tough thing to blame changes in numbers on always versus having just complete ignorance of external factors beyond our control. Obviously, we want to focus on what's in our control, but when numbers are shifting in front of us, it's hard as a human to not be like, oh, why? And try to solve that problem. So I've never, I don't think, I think like you, I have shifted in my career over time in terms of my own reliance on analytics and the way I rely on it. How do you toe that line? Yeah, that's seasonality is actually literally a lie in a hospital operation because it is so seasonal, right? So when you're in the environment like that, you could actually build it into your analytics because it could be quantified in a certain way. But when you're talking about all the other outside factors, they're all, I call it a fudge factor. You can't really predict that because so many different confounding factors are acting in different directions any given time. It's impossible to assume you could distill the pure data out of it. That's just <laughs> right. <laughs> like insane. You would think yourself as a god. But I think you're definitely right. It's very hard to distill what is truly your behavior or people's behavior that's driven the data versus outside factors. But I think normally what I would tend to do is not looking at any kind of metrics or indicators alone. You look at the different indicators that are leading to it. There's a lot of leading indicators you can look at. There's other balancing indicator you can metrics you can look at. Hospital utilization, you can see how many people are getting admitted to the emergency room as an indicator, right? And then that could have seasonality, but you can also look at what type of the patients are coming in for. Is it a seasonal allergy or is it actually just some injury from a skiing accident? Those kind of things could inform you what portion of your data could be outside factors and what portion of your data is actually internal driven. And the, the processing of like metrics will and the leading metrics will tell you what are you doing? Is it changing how you're doing things? If you're actually changing how you're doing things, at least you're halfway there. Means, meaning that you're telling the people to do something, they're actually doing it. So then you need to figure out, okay, is this thing that we're doing not getting the result because it's not effective? Or is it because it's not long enough, we have to wait until a longer time? Or like it will simply resolve itself because once we cl collect enough data sample size, it will show some kind of a trend, right? So that's how I think about it. Not a perfect answer. There's no magical. There isn't a perfect uh, answer. <laughs> there is no perfect uh, magical formula. You can distill things in a, such a pure academic way in the like a real life workplace that you have to either allow a longer duration to collect more sample size or analyze a lot smaller number of data points, but distill into different way to triangulate what is happening. That's yeah. how I think about the intensity of anal analytics with smaller number of data 
versus more data sample size, but you can do some more direct and straightforward analysis. Yeah, I think to expand upon one point that you made, I think as a leader, it's really hard to hang your hat on one top line metric. Your top line metrics changing week to week is like the sun coming out tomorrow. It's just going to happen, right? Yeah. What is important is if these numbers are shifting in ways you're uncomfortable with, particularly if they're trending in directions that you're not comfortable with, then you go to the next layer of metrics, the leading indicators or the component metrics that make up this top line number. Because as you get more and more granular in the component metrics of what ultimately impacts your top line number. So let's say your top line number is sales revenue. Then what goes into sales revenue? It's probably some sort of sales pipeline that starts with number of leads generated, conversion of leads at different stages of the funnel, ultimate conversion to sale, like how much, how what percent of accounts are paid on time? Is that changing, right? There are a lot of component metrics and you can really break that down further. So if you find yourself getting frustrated as a leader with, I don't like the direction that this top line metric is going, that is not the thing to bring to your organization of tell me why this is happening. The ask is, can we figure out in the submetrics, in the component parts, what is changing that's causing this? So if my changes in top line revenue are being driven by shifts in account payment times, well, that's not really a top of funnel problem, right? That's a totally different problem. So why would I go to the sales team and say, you need to sell more when in reality, it's something further along downstream that's largely irrelevant to the sales team and certainly not in their control. So I think just to reiterate, anytime that you are, feeling a certain way about top line metrics, don't stop there. Don't send that to the organization and say, fix it. Go to the next level deeper and ask for more information. Yep, absolutely. All right. We already talked through balancing intuition and data and decision-making, so I'm going to skip that one. You're a leader who is entering a new area of new industry, let's say, you're relatively unanalytical. You don't have a background in data science or data analytics. You're maybe light on the Excel spreadsheet knowledge, you name it. And you say, you're saying to yourself as a new, as a leader, I really need to develop my analytical skill set in order to be effective. What are some basic things that you would recommend to this person? Let's say someone was joining your team as an entry-level manager and they needed to gain a better understanding of analytics as a concept. They need to become more analytical. I have to help mentor and coach quite a few of my previous direct reports and team members in this space who are traditionally not trained in this, right? And then they have a lot of other great clinical or subject matter expertise, but being analytical is not where they're trained for. So it's a quite interesting journey to be on with them and similarly to the prompt you give. I think the first is to overcome your internal fear. That's not about, it, it sounds really counterintuitive. It's nothing about the numbers. It's more about the fear of not being able to understand numbers and therefore you do not do it. 
And I think that's the biggest barrier, honestly, to anyone. Because I can, I firmly believe anyone can go on Google and learn how to do an Excel formula in an hour. It's not the content itself that is challenging. But people just ins instinctly feel like that is not my realm. That's not something I'm comfortable with. I will be a failure if I start on this journey. Therefore, I would never go down this route. That is by far the biggest challenge I've seen. And then that's why I'm thinking the first step for anyone trying to be better at analytical skills is do not be discouraged and do not fear the potential failure. Just start doing it. Really start to just try things and you will figure something out along the way. Yeah, uh, I like that. That's the first step is like more psychological safety for yourself. Yeah. Second step really is about the basics, right? It's not really about, oh, this particular metrics, how sophisticated it is. As most people understand, averages, maximum, minimum, range. These are just daily life concept. You can easily apply that in your business setting and understand these basic things. What I tend to tell the people who are relatively new to the field is you want to look for several things when you're just starting. Keep it simple, right? Looking for any spikes and valleys, those are normally telling you some kind of abnormalities of a situation. It could be good, it could be bad, but you wanted to know and understand what is happening over there and understanding the trend over time. That, to your earlier point, right, that's an indicator of something going wrong or really well. Again, you want to know what is happening there. And then knows what numbers can be compared with what other numbers. That is a very important piece because there's so many metrics that you're like, this metric compared to that one, that is totally different. What is happening here? But they may have very different numerators and denominators and the definition might be different. That is a very big piece that trip people up as they slowly gain confidence in the analytics skill set and then start making mistakes because of that. They would falsely think that, oh, I'm just comparing two very comparable metrics and then drive some like misleading information and insights out of it and take action upon that. So really understanding what are you comparing to, as we always say, is it apples to apples or oranges is very important on your analytical journey. So I think as long as you can do those three things, I think you're like halfway there to be an expert. It's funny that the dealing with metrics and learning to understand metrics, you take the same approach, which is how do we break this down into its understandable component parts, right? If you have a hard time grasping how all the top line metrics fit together or even what some of your main metrics mean, all of those metrics break down into smaller parts that are more understandable, right? And at the end of the day, metrics are just outputs of behavior. And at some point you can get back to the original behavior. And I understand if I do this, then this happens. And that's all that is being measured here is a bunch of these different things happening together, right? And so yeah. I think that's definitely right that as a new entrant into the world of analytics, the main two things that you need to do are one, just toss out the assumption that you can't learn this stuff. And two, figure out ways to make it more basic. And I think as part of that, figuring out ways to make it more basic is be comfortable asking what you think are bad questions. Find 
people who are analytical by nature, but who also want to help and to explain people who are truly analytical are able to communicate concepts easily into their most broken down formats. They, they say, explain it like I'm a five-year-old. If you really understand analytics, you'll be able to explain something to someone like they're a five-year-old. And if someone can't explain something to you in a way that you understand it, that's actually more of a them problem than a you problem. Yeah. So find the people in the organization who both come across as analytical, but also are truly analytical in the sense that they can explain these concepts to you. This is probably true in many aspects of professional development. Find yourself the mentor in the organization who is willing to bring you along in that journey. I have found many people in my career who had a skill set that I didn't, who were more than willing to help teach me the basics of it. If I hadn't asked, it never would have happened. That's the key here when developing an analytical skill set, just like developing any other skill set, just ask. Yeah, absolutely. And also people like overall in the modern workplace are going to be thrilled. You even have the willingness and motivation to learn about analytics because we have such a booming era of data. Having people in your team able to speak fluently about data is going to make your boss life e easier and make your peers life easier and make your team life easier. So I think everyone will be pulling for you if you have actually decided to increase your analytical skill set. That's definitely right. Also, just keep in mind, generally, people love talking about their work and what they do and about themselves, right? So if you're asking someone in the analytics world who's in the data science department or who's an analyst by training, they're more than likely going to be totally happy to talk your ear off about it. Yeah, absolutely. That is all the time we have for today. Bill, thank you so much for joining me on this analytics and leadership journey. I thoroughly enjoy discussing leadership theory with you and how it's put into practice and how it's sometimes not put into practice. So thanks for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. What a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Great honor to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Management 101. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to subscribe and leave a comment or review. That helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thanks for tuning in to Management 101 and we'll catch you in the next episode.